This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. There's no better feeling than a personal win. And the State Farm Personal Price Plan can help you do just that. Talk to a State Farm agent today to learn how you can bundle and save with a personal price plan. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Prices are based on rating plans that vary by state. Coverage options are selected by the customer. Availability, amount of discounts and savings, and eligibility vary by state. The Hargan women seemed to have it all. We were blessed. My mom was amazing. But detectives would soon discover... Inside the house, there were the bodies of two women. A story of betrayal you would struggle to believe if it wasn't true. I'm just praying to God, this is a sick joke. From 48 Hours, this is Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings. Listen to Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings, starting May 8th, wherever you get your podcasts. Due to the graphic nature of this murder case, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes dramatizations and discussions of murder and assault that some people may find offensive. We advise extreme caution for children under 13. You really think it's the boy? The one they've been talking about? I saw his shoes and everything. Didn't they search this place already? There! Over there! Come on! Better get a reward for this. Asking me to help him identify a body. Ugh. Ugh, that smell. Ugh, he's, he's gone rotten. Yeah, he's been missing seven weeks. Here, look at the photo. What do you think? Oh, definitely the Schumacher boy. The papers are going to have a field day with this one. This is Unsolved Murders, True Crime Stories, a ParCast original. I'm your host, Carter Roy. And I'm your host, Wendy McKenzie. Every Tuesday, we dive into the world of a real unsolved murder and try to solve the case. You can find episodes of Unsolved Murders and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. To stream Unsolved Murders for free on Spotify, just open the app and type Unsolved Murders in the search bar. This is our first episode on Arthur Buddy Schumacher, an eight-year-old boy who went missing on July 24, 1925. This week, we'll cover Buddy's family history and what led to his disappearance and death. Next week, we'll cover the hunt for his killer and why the case was never put to rest. Arthur Buddy Schumacher was born in 1916 in the rapidly developing town of Wauwatosa, Wisconsin. For most of the 1800s, Wauwatosa was a small and isolated mill town. But by the end of the century, the advancement of railroads and automobiles made Wauwatosa increasingly connected to its nearby city, Milwaukee. Families began buying up property in Wauwatosa, contributing to a small, early wave of suburbanization that preceded the mass suburbanization of the 50s. One such couple was John and Alice Armstrong, 
Buddy's maternal grandparents. Both had come from prominent families in Milwaukee, but moved out of the city in search of more land and property. By the mid-1890s, John was one of Wauwatosa's most prominent business leaders and was elected to represent the city on the county council. John's wife, Alice, was similarly well-regarded. She owned many properties around the city and was a member of the local women's club. They even renamed the street on which they lived Alice Street. However, not everything was picture-perfect for the Armstrongs. In 1895, John lost three buildings in a town fire. And in 1897, he was accused of assault. Later, John developed a reputation of corruption and gained more than a few political enemies. He was charged with five counts of bribery in 1905. He was also accused of changing his vote for the county's superintendent for the poor to help a friend defeat a rival. During their marriage, John and Alice had seven kids in total, including Florence May Zapp, Buddy's mother. The boys of the family were said to be quite wild, and Florence was often found playing with her brothers and enjoyed watching sports. But as Florence got older, it's likely their family's raucous nature had taken its toll on her. Not only was her father in and out of trouble, he was also a big drinker. In response, Florence decided she would marry someone with strong morals and a virtuous character. Florence met a man from Milwaukee named Arthur Schumacher. He was a sales manager for a surgical instruments company and came from a devout German Lutheran family, far different from Florence's own. The Schumachers weren't well off, but they were highly religious and warm-hearted. The family often got together in large gatherings with friends from church, and alcohol was rarely, if at all, consumed. It's quite possible that young Arthur was attracted to his future wife's well-to-do family, and that Florence, tired of her father's scandalous nature, was attracted to Arthur's deep sense of faith. They were a great match, and Florence was ready for the next step. Oh, oh Florence, would you come here? I'd like to have a word. Yes, Father. Have a seat. Your boy came to see me today. He has a name, you know. He came to ask for your hand in marriage. And you said yes, right, Father? My sweet, sweet daughter. Is this really the man you want to marry? We have talked about this. He's kind, humble, fastidious. And of limited means. Does it matter? It matters if you want to live well and prosper. So I can be like mom and marry drunk like you? <laughs> Those vagrants by the river are drunks. I simply indulge in the fruits of life I have rightfully earned. I love him. You have much to learn about the world. But I didn't say you couldn't marry the poor kid. Only that you shouldn't. What? I can't control you. Do as you want. Father! But be careful. You can't come crying back to me when- Oh, Father, thank you. Thank you. On a warm summer's day in August 1909, Florence May Zapp Armstrong married Milwaukee boy Art Schumacher at a ceremony in her hometown. The two quickly settled down in Wauwatosa. To provide for his new wife, Arthur worked in a drugstore doing a little of everything, watch repair, simple medical procedures, and supply ordering. It was a happy start to their marriage, and six years later, their family of two started to grow. 
On April 11, 1915, Florence gave birth to their first child, a girl named Jeanette Alice. Not long after, on September 2, 1916, little buddy Schumacher was born. Florence loved her children and would do anything to protect them. As a mother, she was warm, gentle, and caring. The family attended church regularly and planned on sending their two children to Sunday school when they got older. But in the fall of 1918, tragedy tore through the world. Spanish influenza had already spread through most of Europe, and after arriving at the Boston Harbor, it made its way west, hitting Wauwatosa, Wisconsin. The entire Schumacher family became ill during this time, kids included. By then, Florence's father had died. By cirrhosis of the liver, of all things. But the worst of the flu went to art. That fall, Florence's dear husband became so ill, he was close to dying. (laughs) I'm so tired. Your sheets are soaked again. Here, let me change them. I can't stop sweating. (coughs) I know, honey. Oh, Lord, Buddy's fussy again. Such a sensitive little thing. Water, please. There, there, buddy. There, there. (laughs) Oh, Lord, please give me strength. (laughs) I can't do this. I can't do this. (laughs) Hello, Mother? Yes, we're okay. We're praying. Art will survive. I know he will. The children are upset, as they should be. Listen, Mother, between Art and the babies, I need help. Since her husband's death, Alice Armstrong had been staying with Florence's sister in North Prairie. But in 1918, she returned to help Florence put food on the table and care for her ill husband. The house was cold and dark when Florence's mother arrived. It was clear that despite her faith, Florence had become completely overwhelmed. Eventually, Florence's prayers were answered, and with the help of her mother, Art recovered. When the flu passed, Florence, Art, Jeanette, and Buddy moved in with Florence's brothers at the old Armstrong house on Alice Street. This could have been due to financial hardship following the epidemic, but it's also likely that Florence had simply enjoyed having more family around. With her kids quickly growing, she might have wanted them to spend more time with their uncles and cousins. But this move required the family to relocate to another part of town, and though the Armstrongs and the Schumachers were now one big happy family, the move might not have been the best decision for the Schumachers' safety. By this time, in Wauwatosa, the West Side Railroad was no longer just a means of transportation for the wealthy. The cars were now full of vagrants, who started shacking up on the outskirts of the town. These vagrants weren't easy to ignore. Many were mentally ill, disturbing, and potentially violent. Coming up, Buddy leaves the house to play with his friends, and never returns. 
Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. This episode is brought to you by Etsy. Sound the gifting panic alarm. You need to get an amazing gift. Wait, no, the perfect gift. Relax. Now you can use gift mode on Etsy. Gift mode on Etsy takes the stress out of gifting, so you can find the perfect item for anyone and any occasion. It's easy. Just tap or click gift mode on your Etsy app or Etsy.com. Then answer a few short questions about who you're shopping for and what they like. And gift mode instantly gives you curated gift ideas based on hundreds of personas. Now it's simple to find gifts made by independent sellers for all the people in your life. So whether you need a housewarming gift for the new homeowner or a birthday present for the pickleballer, gift mode has you covered. Need to find the perfect gift? Don't panic. Try gift mode on Etsy now. And now... Back to the story. By the 1920s, Florence May Zapp Armstrong had married Arthur Schumacher, and they had two children, Jeanette and Buddy. Arthur had nearly died during the Spanish influenza epidemic, but recovered. Following this, he and his family moved to the other side of Wauwatosa, ready for a new chapter in their lives. For some parts of the U.S., the Roaring Twenties might have meant flapper dresses and endless coops filled with champagne. But for the town of Wauwatosa and the greater Milwaukee area, the decade had ushered in a different kind of turbulence. Missing children, specifically young boys. In 1923, two different boys disappeared from their homes in the Milwaukee area. In March, 14-year-old Godfrey Dionizzi's body was found wrapped in a coat and hidden underneath the railroad tracks, just a few short blocks from the Schumacher's home. And in July of 1923, Sherburne Christ disappeared and was believed to have drowned somewhere near Belle Plaine, Minnesota. The newspapers quickly capitalized on these disappearances and leveraged fear to capture the attention of their readers. These cases, among others throughout the country, were highly sensationalized thanks to a period of time in print media called yellow journalism. According to scholar Thomas Arthur Gullison, journalists in this era were heavily dependent on the use of sensationalism, crime news, scandal and gossip, divorces and sex, and heavily stressed disasters and sports. Papers at this time were known for manipulating the truth to make their stories more salacious, leading to widespread fake facts and fake interviews. What do you got for me, son? Issues printing tomorrow, and I need something good. That Dionizzi boy was found by the railroad, sir. Good. Was he mangled? I don't believe so. Wrapped in a coat, I'm told. Make it a woman's coat, a pink one, and give him a gash on his forehead. But, sir... And we need a suspect. Make it one of those hobos that hangs out by the tracks. That'll really get our readers riled up. Yes, sir. The early 20th century was also characterized by the phrase Golden Age of the Hobo, and the area around the Schumacher's home was no exception. Much of the country's poor had started riding the rails and now had easy access to towns outside of the cities. In Wauwatosa, vagrants often set up camps along the river on the outskirts of the city, 
making parents more conscious about where their children were going. But vagrancy wasn't the only concern for this small Milwaukee suburb. Insanity was also on the rise. Though prohibition tried to limit the amount of alcohol-related mental illnesses, in reality, the restrictions only resulted in more of the country's mentally disabled getting locked up. By the time the Schumachers had moved to the west side of Wauwatosa, two new mental institutions had opened up nearby, mostly frequented by the vagrants coming in on the trains. All three, at least according to the Milwaukee Sentinel, were crowded to the doors. Yet Florence remained positive about the move. She believed faith would reward them and that God would protect their family against harm. Arthur was a proud father, Jeanette Schumacher was quickly growing up to be an elegant young lady, and Buddy, with his brown hair, blue eyes, and warm smile, was growing up to be quite the happy kid. But Buddy wasn't entirely immune to the dangers of being a child. He was a naive and enthusiastic young boy, which made him a target for being teased by older friends. Buddy's parents once found him tied to a tree in the Wauwatosa Yunkles, the area of town known for its vagrant camps. Buddy said that he and his friends had been playing a game called Indian, and that his friends had left him there until far past sundown. He was roughly seven or eight at the time, playing with boys whose ages were in the double digits. The Schumachers were concerned, of course, but Arthur chalked it up to kids being kids. Unfortunately, this wasn't the last time Buddy didn't come home for dinner. It was a warm summer's day on July 24, 1925, and eight-year-old Buddy had big plans to go with some of his friends to play by the lake. Around 9 a.m., Buddy ate breakfast, said goodbye to his sister, kissed his mother, and went out to enjoy the joyous weather. Art and Florence went about business as usual that day, but Buddy didn't return for supper. By sundown, Buddy had still not come home, and Art had spent the evening fearing the worst. Florence, I'm getting worried about Buddy. Uh, I'm sure he's all right. He's probably just out fooling around like boys do. I don't know. He went out just after breakfast. Over seven hours have passed. I imagined he'd be tired by now. Hungry? Maybe he went to my sister's? I called already. He's not there. At a friend's house, then. He'll be okay. He's a kind kid. Loved. He can't have disappeared out of thin air. I'm going out. Now? It's dark out. It's dusk. You're going to need a flashlight. I'll find him. Don't you worry. Art Schumacher checked the other boys' houses first, but none of the boys could tell him where Buddy went, only that they'd lost track of him somewhere between the train tracks and the lake. Meanwhile, Florence waited at home for her husband to return, hopefully with Buddy in hand. But when he didn't, she held onto the belief that Buddy had just ended up at one of their relatives' houses and would turn up in the morning. But by the following morning, Buddy still had not shown. I'm dividing the town into sections and organizing a search party. Neighbors, friends, family members, whoever can help. I'm coming with you. Are you sure? It's a little rough west of the tracks and I wouldn't want to frighten you. Oh, Lord. If you think I don't know this town as well as you do. Okay, okay. We're going to start searching the area around the river. We think maybe he swam away or... or something. 
It's a bit of a jungle out there. I'll wear my sturdiest shoes. Buddy! 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 But despite his well-organized efforts, Arthur's search still came up short. There was no sign of Buddy anywhere. If his son had ended up in the lake or the river and had drowned, his body would have floated to the surface right away. But he was nowhere to be found. Reality sank in for Florence. By the end of the first day, she was forced to accept that this was not just a misunderstanding or miscommunication. Her son was truly missing. He wasn't coming home on his own. Here, for your feet. Thank you. Am I warm? No, but you could be down with exhaustion. We were out all day and night and, well, this might be a long process. He's being watched over. I know he is. Florence, honey, we have to get this out to the papers. No, Art, I don't want them making a spectacle of our boy. But if anyone has information, the Sentinel will spread the word. I said no. Oh, oh, I feel nauseous. Florence, sweetheart, we can use the papers to our advantage. If ten people read about him one day, a hundred people are talking about it the next. That's a hundred people that can be on the ground looking. God might have eyes out for our son, but he's got no legs to walk him home. Fine. One announcement. That's all. Florence got so ill that night that Art called a physician to come take care of her. The woman who had stayed so strong throughout the deadly flu was suddenly overwhelmed with uncertainty. Florence didn't go out again, leaving Arthur to tackle the search on his own. That evening, he called the town's police chief and the local newspapers to tell them that his boy was missing. Yet another boy had disappeared. One popular rumor about Buddy's disappearance was that he had been kidnapped as a result of a family feud. An article in the paper postulated that a family member had wanted revenge on Arthur Schumacher Sr. and took his boy to get even. But no further information or evidence was ever divulged, and the theory was quickly abandoned. The case was supervised by then-police chief George Baltus. The Wauwatosa Police Department was brand new, and Baltus was the first person to be put in charge. Thus far, he had spent most of his tenure dealing with a hobo setting up camps in the Yunkles. When Buddy vanished, Baltus was determined to assuage the town's building fears that a kidnapper was on the loose. He had to find someone he could arrest and lock up for good. Attention, attention! It is of an urgent matter that we find the man responsible for the disappearance of little Buddy Schumacher. Anyone without an alibi for the day of July 24th is to be arrested and questioned immediately. But Chief Baltus, what about innocent before guilty? What of that? Quiet! This is a town emergency. What good are principles when a kidnapper's running loose in the streets? As he waited for his deputies to bring in suspects, Baltus turned his attention to Buddy's three friends, the case's only eyewitnesses. But getting information out of the boys proved to be far more difficult than he had ever imagined. Next, we'll see how Buddy's friends made his disappearance all the more taxing. They used to say, go west. 
What they meant was go forward, find your own way, make something out of nothing. It can be tempting to take it easy, but discovery doesn't wait. So this summer, see what it means to make the most of dawn, dusk, and every minute in between. The truth lies west. Discover yours at TravelWyoming.com. And now, back to the story. On July 24th, 1925, Arthur Buddy Schumacher had gone missing after spending the day playing with his friends. The chief of police, George Baltus, brought in Buddy's friends to get their testimonies, but their story proved to be almost as confusing as Buddy's disappearance. At first, the boy said that an unkempt man had shown up at the swimming hole and chased them into the woods which is where they lost Buddy. And on a different day, they reportedly told the police that they'd been chased from a stone quarry. And a few days later, there was a third story. But this one made its way to the police in a rather unorthodox way. Ugh, these darn kids. Still struggling with the witnesses, sir? Can't get their story straight to save their own lives, let alone their friends. May I suggest something? What is it? Today's paper. The wolf boy gave a statement. We were on a train, getting ready to jump off when a fellow up on one of the cars hollered at us. He said, where are them kids going? I didn't say anything, but we jumped off. Then he jumped off and chased us. We ran across the creek, jumping on stones, sticking out of the water. Arthur stood on the tracks and didn't run. Well, this man chased us to Kenyon Avenue, and then he went back to where Arthur was. Sir? This isn't what they told me. It was someone on the train that took him, sir. I got that, Jones. A hobo. Well, then it's time to round up the vagrants. The suspect pool had shifted from anyone without an alibi to anyone without a home. Townspeople sent reports of degenerates who they'd seen in the woods on the day Buddy went missing. One by one, these vagrants were taken in for questioning. Many had previously been accused of harassing young boys, but none of the early leads were fruitful. To top it off, the boys' stories were again called into question when a railroad employee named Charles Polko claimed he'd seen the boys the day Buddy disappeared and gave his account to the town newspaper. I saw three youngsters jump from the train, but the fourth one, apparently the Schumacher boy, didn't get off. When the train went around the curve, he was hanging on to the brake wheel almost flat on his stomach on top of a boxcar. The man didn't get off either, and I saw him sitting on a car as the train went out of sight. He was about three cars ahead of the caboose, and the boy was on a car about the middle of the train. If Buddy hadn't jumped off the train, he could be anywhere in Wisconsin, or even the Midwest. Baltus began to ask other cities to be on the lookout for Buddy, thinking the boy might have gone far away. But a few days later, the papers changed Polko's name from Charles Polko to Frank Blue, complicating the validity of his narrative and sending Balta's attention back to home. On July 27, 1925, a local 10-year-old orphan named Lawrence Nelson led the investigators out into the Yunkles near where Buddy was last seen. He and his friends had set up a small children's camp nearby and claimed that they'd been frequently harassed by two middle-aged men in the area. There, 
Balta's crew found what looked like a makeshift habitation, eggs and a loaf of bread still sitting in a tin pail by a tree. But the two men whom Lawrence described, between 40 and 60 years old, one with a mustache, were no longer in the area. The newspapers grabbed hold of this and went with it. Front pages around the area had titles like Fear Moron Took Boy and Fear Boy is Moron's Prey. That same day, police were told about a young boy who matched Buddy's description and had been seen with an older man on a train outside Oconomowoc, a town about 25 miles from Wauwatosa. But the boy turned out to not be Buddy, and the man in question was the boy's father. There was some hope that Buddy had just been carried off on the train, but no railroad employees outside of town had seen Buddy since his disappearance. The search grew more desperate, and the community of Wauwatosa stepped up for Florence and her family. A group of Boy Scouts went out into the river valley to look for Buddy, and a former member of the Coast Guard scoured the river to see if maybe, just maybe, he might find Buddy's body. They even went back to Buddy's friend's earlier story about losing Buddy in a stone quarry and dynamited the quarry just outside of town. But like with the previous searches, they had no luck. All of the back and forth was beginning to wear on Arthur and Florence. Desperate for closure, Art offered reward money for any information that would lead to his son's return. And since their first day of searching, Florence had still not left their home. The Schumacher's distress was great fodder for the local paper. To the press, Florence's pain was pure gold. An article in the Milwaukee Sentinel quoted by Paul Hoffman in his book, Murder in Wauwatosa, had a picture of Florence the week after the incident looking forlorn on the doorstep to her house. With aching hearts, she awaits her boy. Hoping, praying, waiting, watching, and repeating over and over again, Where is my boy? Where? Where is he? This woman is keeping sleepless vigil, while her husband, assisted by scores of searchers, continues the hunt for their eight-year-old son, Arthur, missing since last Friday. She is Mrs. Arthur Schumacher, and she is shown as she appeared last night in the doorway of her home, peering through the darkness in a vain hope for her boy. Another article had a picture of Florence and her family at the dinner table, a place set for Buddy and the headline, The Vacant Chair. And a third had quoted Arthur as saying that he was planning on dressing as a hobo and going undercover to find his son. The paper acted as if Florence was thrilled at the idea. In her eyes there blazed anew the hope which anxious days of futile searching had almost extinguished. And finally, the paper printed a story with a photo of Florence sitting at home, holding Buddy's blue baby shoes. In a modest but immaculate home at 191 Alice Street in Wauwatosa, she is sitting and waiting, always waiting, praying, hoping, waiting for some news, any news of her boy Buddy. Praying that no harm has befallen him hoping, always hoping, that the next minute will bring him tripping up the stairs. It is just two weeks today since she kissed him and saw him run to play. She has cried. Oh yes, her eyes allow that in fact, the tears have practically harrowed grooves in her face. Even now, after two weeks of weeping, the tears well up unexpectedly. 
but Mrs. Schumacher controls them. Here is that silent, racking grief that is harder to watch than the hysterical kind. It has no outlet, so it must carry its sharp pain still more deeply inward. Anything to find her boy. I don't like how these papers are making us out to be, Art. You dressed as a hobo? It's absurd. But look at the attention. We've raised a thousand dollars in reward money already. You should turn it down, you know. We're turning our boy into a contest, and it's exhausting. Florence. No, Art. I just... I don't have the energy to go out of the house, and I don't have the energy to keep speculating as to where he is, and I don't have the energy to do any more of these photo shoots. <sighs> this has broken me, and not in the way the papers think. I know. But it's all we can do. Let's get out of here for a few days. We can go up to my sister's in North Prairie. It might be good for me. For us. But what if something happens? What if they need me to search? I want our boy home as much as you do, Art. But we can't sustain this forever. This, this waiting around, not knowing what happened to him. Jeanette has already gone back to school. And at a certain point... Our lives have to go on, too. We'll take the first train out in the morning. But just as Florence and Art left town, a Milwaukee resident named Joseph V. Vozar decided to head to Wauwatosa to hunt for mushrooms. He began near the woods by C.A. Kepler's farm, an area that had already been thoroughly searched. After a few hours, he had foraged very few mushrooms and was planning on going home. But when he spotted a thicket near the path that led to the farmhouse, he decided to give it one last shot. There, he came across the body of a young boy, about eight years old. Only four feet away from a well-trodden path, the child was face down, arms outstretched. His clothing had been mangled, and his body was rapidly decomposing. Vozar, repulsed and afraid, ran the other direction and headed home. He had a hunch that he'd found Buddy Schumacher, but he was nervous about being drawn into the story and interviewed by the reporters. Plus, he couldn't be entirely sure the body actually was Buddy's, so he called a friend, Dennis Uradnicek, and together, along with Vozar's son, they took Buddy's picture out to the body in the woods. Sadly, the body was indeed a match for little Buddy Schumacher. Not only did the photo look accurate, but he was wearing the same blue overalls and white canvas shoes described in the articles. After seven weeks of searching for Buddy, Vozar called into the Wauwatosa Police Department. Buddy's body was taken to the town morgue to be identified by his parents. But when Baltus and the Wauwatosa Police Department knocked on their door, they learned that the Schumachers had gone upstate to visit relatives and Florence's brothers, Fred and Edwin Armstrong, were asked to identify the body. Eventually, Baltus was able to deliver the news to Art and Florence in person, and the next day, news of Buddy Schumacher's discovery splashed across the front page of local newspapers. Clothing torn, body mutilated, evidence of foul play in the murder of the Schumacher boy. 
every possible effort must be made to discover and bring to justice the perpetrator of this atrocious crime. When Art and Florence got the news that Buddy's body had been found, they were sad, but primarily relieved. Art didn't have to search anymore. He could finally rest and grieve. Florence, on the other hand, could no longer have faith that Buddy had been taken peacefully. God had failed her. He hadn't protected her son from the horrors of the world. She wanted one thing and one thing only, to find the man that was responsible for assaulting and murdering her little boy. The search for Buddy Schumacher's killer was on. Thanks again for tuning into Unsolved Murders. We'll be back next Tuesday with part two of Arthur Buddy Schumacher. We'll dive into the investigation of the assault and murder of eight-year-old Buddy Schumacher and explore how all evidence pointed to one man. For more information on the murder of Buddy Schumacher, amongst the many sources we used, we found Murder in Wauwatosa, The Mysterious Death of Buddy Schumacher by Paul Hoffman, extremely helpful to our research. You can find all episodes of Unsolved Murders and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify. Not only does Spotify already have all of your favorite music, but now Spotify is making it easy for you to enjoy all of your favorite ParCast originals, like Unsolved Murders, for free from your phone, desktop, or smart speaker. To stream Unsolved Murders on Spotify, just open up the app and type Unsolved Murders in the search bar. We'll see you next time. Yeah, if we live till next time. Unsolved Murders True Crime Stories was created by Max Cutler and is a Parcast Studios original. Executive producers include Max and Ron Cutler. Sound design by Carrie Murphy, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Carly Madden, and Isabella Way. This episode of Unsolved Murders was written by Stacey Lee Nemec, with writing assistance by Abigail Cannon. The amazing cast of voice actors includes Bill Butts, Tom Bauer, Joe Hernandez, Kai Jordan, Dan Velasquez, and Jen Wong. It stars Wendy McKenzie and Carter Roy. 